Well, hey there, thanks for checking out this brand new guitar show. And before we go even one step further, check out this open E chord. Man, that just sounds alive. It sounds like Hendrix being pulled through a modern-day humbucker with an impossibly wide range of harmonics and sustain. In fact, if you know your guitar heroes, that sounds like it could only be Mr. Joe Satriani, our very first guest on the very first episode of... Wait for it. No guitar is safe. Okay, thanks for uh, letting me play around with the helicopter noise there. If you're like me, you're a guitar player and you like cool noises. But that helicopter bit is kind of a metaphor for what this show is because, well, this show is that copter in the night sky with that searchlight. We're out there and we're going to find you. Like if you've done something amazing on the guitar, revolutionary, undeniably cool, if you've made some undeniable contribution to the lexicon of guitar, well, we want to find you and we're going to interview you. We're going to stick a live mic in front of you and we're going to put a live guitar in your hands. And through your own words, with your own voice and your own fingers, you're going to tell us and show us how you did it, how you created that sound, how you put in all those dues, how, like Joe Satriani, you never gave up. I think I was losing about maybe seven, eight grand a week. How you got through all that to create your sound. We want to know. And in case you're wondering who the heck I am, my name is Jude Gold. I've been writing for Guitar Player Magazine since Mike Melinda hired me in 2001. I'm also a guitarist, of course. I currently play with Jefferson Starship and have toured with Billy Sheehan and Kristen Chenoweth, Stuart Hamm, played a crazy solo on a two-live crew song back in the day, which was hilarious. You know, I do what I can to keep the fingers on the fretboard. But I wanted to tell you just a quick word about what we're doing here. It's, uh, it's just really straight from my heart, you know. I have just sat too many times interviewing some amazing guitar player thinking, how unfair is it that I'm the only person in this seat? witnessing this, hearing this story face-to-face, hearing these licks in real time from this great player. Thanks to uh, this new show that we're putting on with Guitar Player Magazine, and thanks to help from our friends at Zoom who provided this amazing Zoom H6 handy recorder, I'm going to parachute into all kinds of crazy guitar player layers, and we're going to get these interviews for you, and we're going to go deep every time. If you like what you hear, you can make sure it happens every week by subscribing to it on like your iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. So, without further ado, let's get the thing rolling. Fire up the chopper. We're going to head over to Joe's house, to his home studio, where the hang begins right after he and I have just plugged in two amazing Ibanez Satriani model JS2410s in tough and cool-looking muscle car orange paint. All right, let's go. Hop in. plays like butter, this like guitar. Like butter, yeah. It really does. You, you're, all your guitars, I mean, I know Ibanez in general, but your guitars in particular. I keep them that way um, because I think I found that the, the experience, the two and a half hour on stage playing melodies and solos requires a different kind of a guitar. You know, I spend half the time, I guess, in a little room like this or in a big studio laying down simple rhythm tracks or stuff like that and you know every once in a while you bring out the cruel telecaster with yeah. 12s on it you know because <laughs> you got to whack the strings or you want something really bold and and unforgiving when i'm occupying like the lead singer position it just doesn't yeah. work it's almost like you th- i think of it this way i bet 
singers uh, eventually get that one mic that is perfect for their voice. And if they're a very powerful singer, you know, if you're Celine Dion, you need a mic that can handle this incredible power, right? If you're a quiet singer, you need some other kind of a microphone. And uh, so why wouldn't, you know, someone who's playing instrumental guitar need like a special setup for the range that they play in and how they have to sit really loud in the mix all the time and but can't be you know razor blades that kind of thing exactly. <laughs> can't be too dynamic i think that's what it is razor blades get tiring after two hours they do. <laughs> after a minute actually yeah. well you also it seems in recent years all your guitars have these sustainiacs it's it all started with robert fripp he was he was here kind of like sitting where you're sitting and i was recording him for uh, a version of Sleepwalk. And I always knew uh, that he had sort of pioneered using that and the Ebo. And, but sitting there watching him work with it, I kept thinking, man, I just, I wanna have that toy, but I can't copy what he's doing with it. And then of course, uh, Neil Sean and, and uh, Steve I, two really good friends, two amazing players, two totally different kind of musicians also had them. And uh, I think, uh, I think Neil uses the Sustainiac, yeah. and Steve uses the Sustainer. So they are different in how they react and, and the controls that they offer you. So I kind of waited for a very long time. And they I, look cool too, you know, the way they're... They do. <laughs> Can I hear yours for that? Can you show us yes, what it does? Yes, it, it does this. You can only do that so much before you annoy the audience, but... Oh, well, um, yeah, that's the magical feedback that we always dream about getting when we're yeah. standing in front of our amp, and then you can just get it in, yeah. in a flick of a switch. It's The funny thing is, is that it's so strong and immediate. There's none of that... Uh, it's very hard to get it to ramp up and then to bloom. What it likes to do is to go, here you go, bam, <laughs> you know, like major yeah. third, two octaves higher, and then it just holds it up there. So if you were watching like a VU meter, you just see it go to 10 and just stay there and go, you know. So real feedback, as we know, is very complex. You're always struggling a little bit with how it's going to develop, and it's very dynamic. I'll tell you where I use it a lot. Like I have a song, let's say, that's that does this, right? And that seems like an easy thing to play, but when you're on stage, monitors, it's loud you need to walk over there to play for that part of the audience, but that maybe is a bad place to be for feedback for a guitar. Yeah. And so you may not be able to turn your guitar up where you need it to be for the sound of the guitar and for you to be able to hear what you're doing. However, with the Sustainiac up and just on simple fundamental, in other words, no super high harmonics, and you bring your, mm -hmm. your volume down a little bit lower and... No feedback problems, infinite sustain, and so you have to play differently. You you have to know that there's this little like monster behind you saying, "I'm going to give you the sustain forever, even if you don't want it." So you you're kind of like yeah. always choking it back a little bit. But there's another uh, I find an emotional vocabulary that comes with it that's very effective. And so sometimes I use that for the ballads, and then of course there are all those moments where it's the perfect night to point to the balcony and hold the most perfect feedback note and this is where this can help you because you may not be 
where you need to be. If it was real feedback, you'd have to be standing by your yeah, amp, yeah. You maybe facing on that, it. On that X of tape that you made a sound check <laughs> right. to remember where the sweet spot was. Right, yeah. But in this case, you just pop the switch and you make a connection and it, and it works with the staging and the lights and the other people in the band and what they're doing. And Besides the fact that it's just a cool sound, it's another little thing that guitar players have to tell a story and and it's a it's a it, I don't know it's got some sort of a voice all its own. It transmits a different kind of a yeah. story, just like an octave device like this, right? So. Now, what was that you just stepped on the, there? This is um, one of the, maybe it's the second uh, full-tone ultimate octave box. Yeah, it looks totally garage. Yeah, it's, it was, they're pretty funky. This one's very noisy at the moment. It's, that's great. Um, <laughs> that's authentic. These did sort of deteriorate over time, but the, the very first one that I have does have yeah. the mojo in it. I think that they put out a little bit too much subharmonics. I think the the uh, Voodoo Labs Proctavia is a little bit more friendly if you're, you know, over 100 dB and you've got a couple of cabinets running and you can't take that super 40 hertz flying around the stage. It kind of trims it and makes it work with the band. And so I, I've, I've wound up using that more often. But um, uh, in the studio sometimes uh, where you can carve... Uh, the EQ more effectively, and you don't have to worry about the noise so much. This one's just out of control. <laughs> totally. Now, what? Let's zoom back a little bit. I'm I'm really curious. I, I've actually known you for quite a bit, mm-hmm. and I've, uh, you know, when I was at Berkeley High School, you were the guy in town that I heard your name for a year before I met you, and everyone was playing your music, and and it was really cool because I could hear this style that was, uh, it was rock, but it was very mystical too and it had kind of like other influences world influences and it was coming through other players jeff tyson yeah. who we both know um yeah. adam johnson would show me your licks kevin cadigan yeah and, and of course you taught many other players but what was i'm curious where that came from like what was your first guitar for? it was a hackstrom three i'm guessing it was it was 1970 when uh my sister carol purchased it for me but i'm i don't know what year it was so it could have been a late 60s Hackstrom three white uh, with black pickguard, um, skinniest neck ever, and it had some strange, curiously enough, a very like Brian May guitar vibrato bar system, right. uh, which I started doing crazy things with immediately. I remember the first trick I did was I can't really do it here, can I? I used to take the guitar, put the bar facing away from the neck, put the bar on a table, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, let yeah. the weight of the guitar bend the bar backwards while playing. These were kind of things I would show my earliest students like Steve I, and they thought I was nuts, of course, like, for doing this stuff. You were teaching him in, uh, like, the Westbury, New New York area of Long Island? Yeah, we we grew up um, in two little towns that neighbored each other, Car Place and Westbury. So we all went to Car Place High School, public high school there. What was the first lick you remember just, man, I got this, I'm rocking this. What, what, can you, do you remember something that from that era that you used to play? Was it Zeppelin? Was it Hendrix? You're... No, I mean, we used to do, you know... You know? Yeah. I think what I'm thinking now is uh, three, four... Thank you. 
Yeah, I think it was a song I wrote with um, the guys in the band. We had a band called Tarsus. It was my second band. First band was Mephistopheles. Very cheerful name. But yeah, the licks like that were really funny because they were... I think they were inspired by like James Gang, stuff like that. Yeah, you you went so far. You took the, you've always still had that sort of pentatonic Hendrixy stuff, but you've taken it so far. Who was like the first guitar concert you saw where somebody just blew your mind and it was like you couldn't Mm. speak afterwards? (laughs) I think uh, the first time I, I saw a band live when when I was a teenager, you know, like maybe I was 13 or something like that, was I went to the Westbury Music Fair, a theater in the round, and I, I saw... I played there. You re- like you, spinning around like yeah. at a point zero two wow. miles an hour. I'm very lucky. I've never never had the chance to play there. Um, but It's I saw, very weird because the PA system's kind of facing one way, but your amps are spinning around. Yeah. So your amp tone, I mean, you really want to be no amps on stage. You know, I but I remember because I play the, the there's one in Phoenix uh, that is a famous theater that we've played I don't know 50 times over the last 30 years and it it's always weird I always get a little bit nauseated from the motion and uh, but um, the audience seems to love it and I and I realized yeah when I saw Sh- Chicago Transit Authority before they became the band Chicago uh, Terry Kath was a guitar player and he was playing a 335 into a Marshall stack and they were all as you know, that stage, you're all kind of stuck up there and he couldn't move. I mean, I think he literally had two feet in front of him. So he was right by his amp, but I think he loved it. I just remember thinking that that was the greatest guitar sound I'd ever heard anybody create live. It, and he used a lot of feedback. Especially with a 335 uh, in front of him. Right. And the Marshall. band was cooking around him. I mean, he had, he had this sonority around him because the horn section was unbelievably good and the keyboards and so it it sounded very rich harmonically and he was a great player and I just remember thinking man that is beautiful and then about two weeks later I saw Jethro Tull at the very same venue also totally blew my mind and I think um, there was a group of those shows I think right after Hendrix died I saw Steve Miller at the Fillmore East in Manhattan and that was an amazing show as well first of all Apparently, you were playing football at 14. I mean, yeah. that's hard to picture. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, you know, when you're that age, everyone is still kind of small. It's really yeah. not until you're just about 14, 15 that the people who are going to be big start to get really big. You so know? you got hit one day, and you're like, okay, forget this, guitar. No, I was still thinking, you know, there were a couple of guys shorter than me, but they were much tougher. I wasn't particularly good, but I was on the team. What, you know? what position? Tight end. Ah, yeah. I think that you, last year. You're going to take some hits as a tight end, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I was not, I think I was just because there wasn't anybody else left, so they stuck me on the end there. And and hence, when we'd play other teams on the island where the kids were bigger, I would get just creamed because I'm right there on the line. I remember, I, you know, I was thinking, got to get out of this sooner or later because <laughs> this isn't working. I was suited up for practice and on the way out to the field and a a teammate just said, hey, I went home for lunch and I heard it, you know, on the news that that guy you like died. It, of course, was Jimi Hendrix. And uh, yeah, I was pretty devastated by that. So I, I just quit right there. I just turned around and walked in. And So you've been listening to a lot and been passionate about hearing, but hadn't been playing yet. Yeah, I, I started playing drums when I was nine and I was taking lessons. And then by the time I was like 12, I realized I wasn't going to be yeah. great. You know, and I thought, well, this is this is going to be lame if you're just kind of like a medium, mediocre drummer, right? My family also was was sort of buckling under the 
the noise a factor because when you play drums in a house, you know, it's yeah. just they're waiting for you to get good, like, like, hurry up and get good, please, you know. Now, wait, speaking of that, you got good on the guitar pretty fast. If you start at yeah. 14 and then within three or four years, you're giving lessons, I guess, to I was Steve giving I. lessons within <laughs> the year, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, this is a good example of how musicianship is a is separate from, you know, physical ability. And I was learning this lesson uh, year by year around the same time from Bill Westcott, who was my music theory teacher in high school. He also taught the chorus and he was the general music class teacher as well. But, you know, he was always saying, you know, the musician in your head and, and in your heart, that's the one that you really need to train. That's the one that can keep learning until you're 95 years old. The, your fingers, however, may fail you, you know, and, and your limbs. And it might be something. It might be a roadblock. It might be your reach, your stretch. It might be your speed. It may be your coordination. It doesn't mean that you can't imagine and compose and direct and do lots of other things in music. I did progress pretty quickly in terms of being able to play music. The difference was is that I was also exposed to this new group of kids that were a few years younger than me, like Steve I, who I could tell by the second lesson had more than I did. And I was like, wow, this is like what Bill Westcott was talking about. It's like there's, you know, there's people being born all the time and some of them are great at jumping high or running fast or just sitting and thinking and there's you know all these talents and they come together in the strangest combinations and so what's your combination you better figure that out and work on those things that uh, you have the most potential with and the other things don't bother you know beating your head over and I learned that by watching you know like Steve and, and his friend Frank would take lessons together I don't know how long, maybe a couple of weeks until I pulled Steve aside and I said, this ain't working. You're like yeah. going a million miles an hour and, and Frank's cruising, you know, right. so I got to give you separate lessons. Um, yeah. But I could tell right away that like, wow, Steve's going to have bigger hands and he, everything I give him, he it's never awkward. And the things I'm showing him, I'm still awkward with. And so he would come back. So after about a year or two, he could physically play everything that I could play. And it was, again, a great lesson in sort of humility of, number one, what it's like to be a teacher. And the other yeah. thing is to look inward and say, well, if I'm not going to be someone who has this talent, then why am I wasting my time with it? Well, it's really interesting because I know a few of your former students. I even took a lesson from you. Really? And, yeah. I took a lesson from you when I was 17, <laughs> and I was very honored that you called me back. Hey, what's up? Where's the next lesson? I, I should have saved that answering <laughs> machine message. It was on a cassette tape answering. Wow. But you know what was happening was I was uh, studying with, my, I already had a teacher, Tuck, Tuck Andress from oh, Tuck wow, and great. Patty. Yeah, he's, he's a monster. And what I, year would that be? 87? All right, so I taught for one, well, I my last lesson was January of 88. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, it was right when I was finishing up. Now, it's funny talking to Kevin and Adam. I actually called them today just for I was like, well, what kind of, was I driving over here? I was on the bridge. I was like, what kind of teacher was Joe? <laughs> it's been a while. And they both had, of course, amazing stories. They both said you were tough. Yeah. One Another one of our friends from Berkeley High uh, was, <laughs> he walked in and, and an eight-year-old kid was walking out and you told him, see that eight-year-old kid? He plays the scales better than you do. <laughs> well, I, I had students that covered the whole spectrum of life. I mean, I'd literally have like the eight-year-old kid and he'd come in and he'd put like a plastic monster on the amp and then pick up his guitar. And of course I wouldn't lean on him, you yeah. know, because he's just there because his mom thought it was a good idea to, for him to be exposed to, 
guitar playing or something. Um, and I'd have like, I remember uh, I had a race car driver and, and more than once he came in uh, just devastated because somebody died on the track while they were just working on cars. And, and so, um, you know, and I had doctors and lawyers and then I had this group of people who wanted to become rock stars. And so uh, when you're sitting there in the teacher's chair, you realize, well, this race car driver, he, I just got to teach him something to mellow out to just, you know, I'm yeah. not going to say what, I don't care about the accident. You like, did you practice your scales? It's never about that. So generally the adults who were professionals needed to have music in their life. And that's what I was really helping them with. And the kids, I was just exposing them to. Yeah. Well, some of them music. obviously were very serious. Let, let me hear, t give me a couple sentences and we'll go through some of these great players. <laughs> okay. that you. First of all, we'll start with uh, my classmate at High, Berkeley High, Jeff Tyson. He was a great ambassador of your sound. Yes. He, he had all this, this legato stuff and new scales yeah. that we, none of us had heard and sweep our pay shows. <laughs> he was straight representing. What was Jeff like for you? Well, he was great. He was a lot of fun. He seemed to, to have a very free attitude towards uh, music. And from my perspective, this may have been wrong, but he seemed to be not as... Um, socially bothered by what he was learning or how it would relate to his social scene, you know, which, which was a, a help at the time. Uh, sometimes I get students that would come in and they, you know, it's all about death metal and that's all they want. So if you show them anything else, they're like, I'm never going to be able to play this for my friends. I don't want to be caught dead practicing right. it. I don't want people outside of my room here <laughs> playing it. You know? Interesting. Uh, but Jeff was up for anything. I remember teaching him this thing. I think I got, the, I, I said, uh, just kind of like, Start with, you know, some sort of hammer-on thing, and and uh, and then and then do it. And then I said, well, how about if we, you know, put get a lot of gain going on your amp, and turn down the the, you know, put some tone on it so you can get some of the high end out. And then I said, just play nonsense, but make sure it's legato and pick maybe every third or fourth note. So I gave, he would. And I said, just keep going. Don't even think about what key you're in or anything like that. Just play nonsense. Yeah. And, and uh, come back next week and just, you know, do that for as many hours a day as you can do it. So, of course, he came back. And Jeff sounded like Holsworth, like in seven days, you know. And of yeah. course, he didn't know what he was doing. And I said, yeah, but that's okay. Now let's talk about how you can apply it to, you know, you know, to keys and real scales. And let's talk about giving you fingerings that you can, uh, you can see on the guitar, but I don't want you to follow them like you have to pick them like this. Because so otherwise you sound methodical, you know what I mean? Yeah. And what you just, you want to sound free you want to sound musical and he, he already had that as part of his of his personality he could yeah. easily just detach himself and and play freely you know not all the players that i would try that technique on could withstand that kind of obscure practicing yeah he went for everything he did he did and and he had the hands to do it now tell me about kirk hammett uh, you know um i met kirk when he was in exodus so he was already really a professional guitar player um, I guess he was still in school, maybe. Yeah, he got started young. For yeah. Sure. We started with like uh, Shanker and Stevie Ray Vaughan and Hendrix and Uli John Roth and stuff like that. But he always had stuff that was pressing because he was in a band. And then during the course of our lessons, uh, he got the Metallica gig. 
and recorded several records up until the last lesson right before the surfing tour, which would have been January of 88. And uh, so what, what Metallica record would that be? Justice for All? Yeah, yeah. Well, so and you're so teaching him all that time. We, so there were like, you know, and the lessons got started to get stretched out because he'd be on tour or something like that or if they were tour if they were recording uh, out of state or something. That's cool. It sounds uh, like a dedicated student. He was great, and you know, um, maybe your neighbor still no nowadays. Yeah, here in yeah, San Francisco. not too far down there. Cool. Um, he, uh, you know, besides the fact that he had this pressing job all the time, you know, a, re- a need to like gather information and implement it, he also was uh, free enough for me to give him the information without any style. So this is what I was afraid of, you know, which is I I have a style and I don't want people to copy it because it becomes like a trap. They might not see out of it. So I'd say, well, you know, after I'd say to him, like, well, look, the chord, the notes that are in the riff are the notes that you use for your solo or melody scale if you want to sound like you're inside. If you want to sound like you're outside on purpose, then play all the other notes. So wrong notes are just, they're not wrong, they're just outside. So think inside, outside. But a lot of the the progressions that they were working on did not support normal key signatures. Right. You know what I mean? They they would be changing keys like a bebop song, but they didn't, but the music didn't suggest that there, that that you could play all these different scales as you would if you were bopping over changes. Actually, that style of music, they want you to kind of like be rock, you know what I mean? With a little extra spice on it, you know what I mean? So, and he, I think instinctively he realized that, that somehow it's got to sound like I'm an aggressive rocker, but I also have to, I have to, you know, echo the shades of these weird progressions where their fifths are all flatted and the third and and the sixth chord don't belong in the key. But, you know, it's almost as if half the chords in the progression are just passing chords, even though they're being dwelled upon for a very long time. And so I'd show them these scales and then I'd say, you have to decide, Kirk. You don't want me showing you my idea because it'll just it'll sound old because I'm so much older than he is. And and he was in the in the middle. He was part of the birth of a style. You know what I mean? Yeah, so they were doing Ruthie's in creating speed metal. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I could feel that, and I felt the weight of it, and I I stepped away. Now, a lot of places online or whatever will list your first album as being not of this earth, but mm. all of us who knew you knew you had this other album, which I guess we call the White Album. Right? <laughs> Is that even on your discography? Is it out of print? What? what it's do you... on. As a matter of fact, if you can turn around and look over the desk there, you'll see the reprint. Legacy um, recently released it, I guess recently, last November for Record Store Day. And John Cunaberti remastered it and we had it recut. It sounds better than ever. Now tell me about the, that project because it was, uh, this was vinyl back then. Yeah. And how did, you know, word had it, you used your credit card or? <laughs> no, that's a different story. That's a different story. This one, um, I did it at Likewise Productions, which was Jeff Holt's studio in Oakland. Uh, Jeff had recorded the squares a couple of times, so that's how I knew him. And I came to him with this idea of an album with only guitar, no bass, no keyboards, no drums. And I would use Allen wrenches and screwdrivers on the pickups and on different parts of the guitar to create a rhythmic bass for to mimic kick drum, hi-hat, snare drum. Choo-choo trains. I remember you did a steam, yeah. steam train. <laughs> yeah, I can show that to you right now, yeah. as a matter of fact. Sure. It's so easy to do, right? You just um, get your nails... 
you you dig them underneath the the G string. Right. You pull the G string over the first two strings and over the side of the neck. God, I've done that a million you, times with. And that's it. Sometimes you get a really good one. <laughs> that's crazy. You know, I've done that many times where you pull the one string over, but I've always you had to use my right hand. I never ever thought about using yeah. my fingernails to pull it's that string over. It's not great for for keeping your guitar in tune. And then for the chug part, I use some a balled up uh, wad of aluminum foil and just kind of yeah. scraped it against <laughs> there. But we we brought the tape speed up so that it you know, and then we we did the reverse thing. So as it got faster, the tape speed got slower and. That's wow. how we got that sound. And I was that, using probably so cool. my original Big Muff pie that I purchased through Cream Magazine, no, I think, back when I was 14. <laughs> <laughs> that's a cool item to get out of that magazine. Now, that's a little bit of an avant-garde sort of record for your first it, guitar it, it album was. to be. Yeah, it was a 12-inch uh, disc, and it was done at 45 RPM. A lot of people, including like one of my best friends, Doug Doppler, who was a student yeah. of mine for many years. Doug, he I actually, I, I took lessons from Doug. I too. think Doug listened to that record at 33 for the longest time and just thought, man, Joe really is weird because <laughs> it must have sounded like some guy on Thorazine trying to make a record. <laughs> now, I was, I was always just, you always brought in all these new techniques, but they always sounded so hypnotic and beautiful. I remember something, this is so long ago. What was that? Oh, yeah, banana mango. Beautiful. The Mixolydian thing. And yeah. then you had like the legato overdub come in. Yes, right. Was like, you, know, you really kind of, for me, it's like you made legato palatable to the masses in a sort of a pop melodic way. Yeah. And there was Haldsworth who made Legato in this whole, you know, other world, like, you know, yes. fusion outside kind yeah. of way. The first time I saw Haldsworth, well, the first time I heard him, I was I was jamming with a guy who was much older than I was, who lived around the block. I was friends with his younger brother, and it was like a treat to, like, jam with a grown-up, you know? And uh, we were jamming for about a half hour in his basement, and he goes, you know, I have to play you a record. There's a guy doing what you're trying to do. And so I was thinking, oh yeah, what, what, he's gonna play me some old farts music or something like that. And he puts on Tony Williams' Believe It, right? That had Alan Pasqua and Alan Holsworth. And um, I was totally blown away. As soon as I heard Fred and Red Alert and those songs, I was like, wow. And this is Holsworth with, a, with an SG, S Paul, you know, Les yeah. Paul SG with the three pickups, playing through a Marshall. And l later, I think that year, he came to a little club called My Father's Place in Roslyn, a little place on Long Island. And so I think that place held maybe, I don't know, 200 people or something. And so we went there one night, and there must have been 20 people there. Yeah. Uh, but I got to see him up close. Uh, just amazing band. Uh, and Tony Williams, just like one of the greatest drummers of all time. But there's Alan with the SG, a small stone face shifter, plugged into a Marshall one of the cabinets is turned towards the wall. You know, he can barely be contained in that little club. Right. But so my exposure to the legato was rock legato, was this, you know, SG yeah. into a Marshall thing. So I, I never thought that it was something fusion-y. To me, it was the experience right. was pretty rocking all the time. And, and it did give me sort of license as a student to pursue something because the opposite was Aldemiola. At the time... 
and this kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier about how, how some musicians simply can excel in certain areas of technique. And you have to sort that out as a student and not, not let it get you down. And you also have to remember that just because you can do it doesn't mean people want to hear it. That's a whole other right. <laughs> thing that you have to understand. But there, was, there were a lot of kids who had the ability to pick really fast and they would do it and they would it would be like an accomplishment they would like to show off and i just remember thinking but it, it always sounds the same if if you do that in every song then you're kind of telling the same story all over again on the other hand holsworth could do both but when he picked it was so light that he seemed to have a million shades of picking and then he had this legato thing that he could introduce in a million different ways and i thought well this is really cool because every song, when he had that rock set up, did sound quite unique because of the variety of his picking technique and the legato put yeah. together. So I thought, well, this really works with my hands very well and what I'm finding uh, interesting to listen to. Uh, and you have to remember that you know, my hero has always been Hendrix because of, besides the great playing and the music and everything else that, that he put into his music, he never revealed that he practiced it all there's nothing in his playing that says look what i practiced for eight hours a right. day for 16 years you just never hear an exercise or a scale that you would pull out of a book but you hear yeah. that with most people i remember in our lesson i was you had your next album out which was not of this earth which right. was amazing that was the credit card record that was the credit card record. okay yeah <laughs> you had like you know i remember my friend moose lethridge musashi he's like gotta check this out and it was like there it is we all knew like van halen had created like a whole realm of guitar and it's yes. just like whoa this is a new realm you had like uh you had like the headless horseman yeah. but you but in, <laughs> i want in my lesson i was asking you about it sounded like the most bizarre insane lick but when you showed it to me it was just a little legato thing on two strings what it, was it the lick was something like oh that was that was from yeah, yeah that one yeah yeah and out of this but what is it it's uh yeah that's it yeah, I you know you can really hear like um, there's a there's a Holsworth song called Red Alert that you know I swear every like couple of months it pops into my head again and I say that is the most perfect legato guitar solo with a rock thing like I've ever heard. It's a funny little category, but um, yeah. just his phrasing how he starts off playing a couple of notes. And then he's digging and you hear the pick and you hear the rock and the band is cooking and cooking. And, and then all of a sudden he starts playing so many notes so close oh, together. Yeah, it builds. It just builds and builds and it blows your mind. So I had all this stuff in my head when we started that record and everything was like in the studio I would present to John Cunaberti like, uh, check this out. This song has got these chords, right? And I... And I'm just going to have to, you know, trust me as we play this against a click that it's going to work, right? And then I'd lay down the bass part and he'd be waiting and he'd say, are there only two bass notes in this entire song? I'd say, yes. <laughs> right. And, uh, and, you know, and then I'd say, now you have to understand that the, the you know, there's going to be like a verse guitar and then there's going to be like 
background vocal guitars and then there's going to be like a bridge guitar but this you know there's going to be this thing and i tried to explain pitch access to him and everything he'd be like forget about that and we would we would think well if this guitar is going to be really loud maybe we can make it sound kind of odd so you know john had been making uh squares demos with us he'd been our live sound engineer for four or five years so we'd already done That's the cool. marshall stack thing to death so when I showed up, there's a lot of people don't know this, but I showed up for those sessions for Not of This Earth, and I didn't bring an amp. I I told John, I said, I'm not bringing an amp. I'm sick of carrying my marshals around, and I'm just going to use whatever you have there, and I'm going to bring this this uh, little thing, Rockman. And he's like, are you crazy? I said, no, I, I'm, I'm sure Dan Alexander, who was running the studio at the time, has got some little cool amp in a closet somewhere. So when I got there, it was a pro reverb, I think. And all that stuff was done through the pro reverb. And if it was clean, it was either DI, guitar, just into a mic pre, um, or we used the Rockman if we wanted some of that weird compression, stereo chorus. It was part of me saying, I'm not going to take that normal route of the guitar hero shredding with the Marshall stack and the Les Paul. And I just, I needed a completely new canvas to work on and create a different world where the melodies could be a very important part of it and then when you came out with these unique little phrases like you know that you know that it would sound like a statement but i thought if if you build a track like a regular rock band and then you add the guitar it'll just sound like the guitar player is playing and you're waiting for the vocalist to start singing right. so you know we had to really be very careful with how we treated everything and since we were fans of um unusual uh, bands like Kraftwerk and and we'd you know been inundated with that sort of romantic early tech music vocal music uh from the UK in a way I gotta say I was rebelling against the current you know 80s guitar hero kind of thing and so I thought I don't even I don't want like that shredding guitar harmonic minor in lots of reverb kind of thing you know it's like yeah. i just don't want any of that well so you we, also yeah you really created this concept of strata different layers in terms of eq different parts all fitting to create a real th three-dimensional sort of approach that many mm -hmm. instrumental guitarists i think have copied over the decades and and the, you know that's the the influence of john cunaberti because he's got a just a very intense set of ears now right around this time Tell me what happened when you got a call from somebody asking you to play with Mick Jagger. What, <laughs> yeah. I never talked to you about that, but real briefly, what was that like? You did a tour with Mick Jagger yeah. right in the middle of all this. Right in the right after you know teaching Kirk for the last time, I started my very first tour as a solo instrumentalist. I'd never done it before, and so I was pretty nervous about like, what do I do? I go up on stage and I start playing. Do I move around? I mean, like, I'd been in the squares, but we were a vocal power pop band, you know. And so I had no experience in it. And we went out for a three-week tour, started on the, the West Coast. Now, was this the uh, Surfing with the Alien album yeah. already? So that had already yeah. come out. It had right. come out uh, late October 87. Yeah. So a few months later, it's on. The, it landed on the charts at 187, and it just kept going. It just kept going. And so the label said, you got to go out on tour. I said, look, I don't have a band. I don't have any experience. I thought you guys were going to, like, kill me after I gave you this record. And they were like, no, 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 it's a success. You know, you gotta go out and do it. So 
I had met uh, Stu and Jonathan months earlier, and so I said, "You guys want to do it? Let's let's just see what we can do." So we cut, we were winging it. You know, we just improvised yeah. a lot because we didn't have enough songs. We didn't have a show. No production. We were. I think I was losing about maybe seven, eight grand a week. This was not a, a successful little club tour. Two shows a night. You know, in these clubs. And uh, after about two weeks, I got a call from Kevin Burns, who used yeah. to be my agent uh, when I was in the squares and who had been working for Bill Graham Presents. He knew about the surfing record before it even came out and was sort of a champion of it. And by coincidence, Bill Graham Presents ha had been promoters for Mick Jagger's solo tour. So they'd been in New York City for months trying to get Mick and the band ready for a Japanese tour in March. So Kevin calls me and he says, you're not going to believe this, but how would you like to audition for Mick Jagger's band? And of course it was, you know, I thought he was just pulling my leg. But I said, well, yeah, okay, well, I'm going to be in New York in two days, so I guess I'll be there. So we did, um, can't remember down. how many songs. I, it was just an SIR. It was a straight audition. Mick wasn't there, as far as I knew. And I was just jamming with Simon Phillips and Doug Wimbish. Uh, Phil mm. Ashley was on keyboards. Hacks. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing sounding band. And we were just playing blues, and we were playing Stone songs and Hendrix. And, and Mick just ran into the room after about a half hour and said, oh, I've been listening outside. Sounds great. Let's do some more songs. And then after about 40 minutes or so, he was like, I really want you in the band. Can you do it? Were you at all nervous to be going in that morning to meet the biggest, I most think, famous singer in the world? Yeah, I think I really was. I think I was concerned that he would turn out to be an asshole, you know, right. which is usually the case. You meet someone who's like, you know, one of your heroes and they blow you off and, and you go, man, I can't listen to that record ever again because of that you know mick was just the opposite he was so funny and he was just like one of the guys in the band who really just wanted to have a good time and put rehearsal off for the last possible moment you know <laughs> uh which was great so i saw him over the course of those months make everybody feel happy somehow pull it all together and then on stage the guy was the greatest he was just the greatest performer I'd ever seen and stood next to. And What's a vivid memory of that you, when you're standing there backing up that you remember him doing that just struck you? I, was, I forget what song it was. I was playing a guitar solo and Mick loved to like run around and do things to you while you were like doing a solo or something like that. And he's looking at me, giving me this, you know, the usual strange look that, you know, demonic look that he gets and he's moving in that strange way that can throw you off if you look at him too long and you're trying to keep a groove, you know, he has his own way of moving. And all of a yeah. sudden, and he grabbed me and he was literally biting me on my shoulder <laughs> while I'm, you know, while I'm sitting there shredding. Yeah. It was pretty funny. When I think about that, it reminds me of how dedicated he was on every show to give a great show. And even like during the show, like backstage, he would say, we got to do this. We got to do this. I'm noticing that those people over there feel like they're being neglected. Let's go over there, you know, and do something. And so, wow. he, and he, you know, so the me and Jimmy Rip and him would run over to this section and just work a crowd. And he, he just did it to the very end, three hours and 15 minutes. And he's three the hours. only singer. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's that was pretty a, amazing. That's why he jogs in New York City. <laughs> he was just great. He was a, he just loved his audience. He loved performing. He wanted to do a good show every show, and he didn't have to. If there was anybody in the world that didn't have to do anything, it's probably him. It would be fun to just be backstage yeah. and just you know. If he heard you doing that, you know he just starts singing. He wouldn't.
but that's how that happened. So yeah. yeah, so we we kill the we did two shows at the bottom line. He came up, did Red House with us, and um, uh, which just totally blew the audience away. Some people have this star power that is so amazing. It's so it's such an awesome thing to watch it happen. When we were doing uh, that show at the bottom line, things were cooking, and I think Stu and Jonathan and myself were feeling like, you know, we're we're really the shit here. This is really happening. We're working the show, and Mick comes on stage, and the audience just turned into something else. It is we. I just remember we all looked at each other like, oh my God, is like this is what star power does to the vibe in an audience. The audience suddenly like took the whole show so much more seriously. They were so much more up. You know, the energy. Well, I mean, I remember playing there years ago, and that that is an insanely small place to have such a big rock star. <laughs> it's it's a it's a ridiculous stage. There's a pole on the stage. It's just everything about the place is terrible. I was so amazed that when I said to Mick at the uh, the auditions, he said, uh, "Are you playing in town?" I said, "I'm playing at the Bottom Line," and I jokingly said, "You know, you should just come, and we'll you know we'll play Red House or something." And he was like, oh, yeah, 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 right, you know. That night, or that whatever that show that night was, all of a sudden someone comes back and says, oh, Mick's here. He wants to know when we're, when he's going on. And That's the guys great. were like, oh, my God. So he comes backstage. He says, oh, great, we're going to do Red House, right? And uh, and I said, yeah, we'll do that. And, and Stu and Jonathan were like, Red House? What's that? <laughs> They'd never heard or played Red Whoa. House by Jimi Hendrix. Which kind of Mick gave me a look like, who are you playing with? That they don't know that it was a funny moment. Gotta know your but blues. But of course, that didn't scare him at all, and oh, he yeah. just jumped on stage and just, he man, he it. tore the place down. Years later, we were doing a G three. Um, me and Steve were in the UK, and I think Adrian Leg was the the third guy, but he was an acoustic player. Sweet. And we we had invited Brian May to come on stage and play at the end of the show, and uh, Brian, sweetest guy in the world, but another guy who's musical aura and stage presence is monumental and you know it when you meet him and you know it from listening to the music but you have no idea what you're in store for until he walks out on stage and you're in front of 8,000 people and you you just feel the audience no matter how high you thought you had them they go to this other level purely because Brian just showed up and he hit one note and everybody just melts and goes crazy and yeah that star power thing is really something i saw you on your uh on your uh surfing with the alien tour me and adam adam johnson we went and saw you at great. the fillmore it was great and wow. to see i think i think it was sold out yeah i think we did two it, sold out shows yeah, yeah it was packed and then you had this secret weapon when you hired Stu ham did you know that he was going to do these big 10 minute like crazy cadenza <laughs> no one had ever really seen someone go off with such a bright bass tone doing all the slap stuff doing humorous stuff like the yes star trek and peanuts themes and country jams <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Good, nice break during the set, I guess, for you. It was really great. And plus, we were a trio, so he played harmonically, which was really great. He could play, uh, yeah. you know, this for, for always. He would do that on the bass, and it was ridiculous just to look at anyway, but he would pull it off. Oh, and then you got to play over it, right? Yeah, yeah. So th that was important for us because we could not afford to be a four piece. You know, everything was, you know, one yeah. vehicle, three guys, you know, minimal amount of equipment, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's amazing how many albums you've actually sold as an instrumental guitar player <laughs> i mean i think 10 million or something yeah it's, it's far over 10 million but uh <laughs> um it's crazy i think uh, what's what's more remarkable when i think about it is that back then as i said before it was so hard to do a tour two shows a night small clubs that would hold 400 people 
um, even though that we had a record on the charts, and this is pre-internet days, right? So pre-sound scan, pre-internet, and uh, it was really hard to get the word out. Um, you know, this podcast will get the word out around the globe, you know, as soon as it comes out. Yeah. And and that was something that was not at our disposal as musicians back then. It's interesting. Yeah, and now in your band now, you have two guys that are friends of mine that uh, are very active in social media, Marco Miniman and uh, right. Brian Beller. Right, yeah. So this is kind of your latest rhythm section. And, of course, you got Mike Keneally. Yeah, amazing. Insanely deep cat and guitars on yes guitars and keys and probably a whole bunch of other stuff knowing him so uh, how's this new band i guess you tried them out and it seems to be working yes uh i I came you know i knew brian before through uh playing with steve uh and of course i've been working with mike keneally for quite a while and i met mike back on the first g3 tour back in 96 so i've known about his incredible musicianship so when we were finishing Unstoppable, uh, the record at Skywalker, uh, I knew then that I wasn't going to be able to bring Chris Chaney and Vinnie Caliuta out on tour. So uh, I think one day during the overdub sessions, I was talking to Mike about that. And he said, oh, you got to use these guys I use for my band. you know." And I realized they had sort of like a family between Marco and Joe Travers and, and Mike and Brian. They, you know, between Death Clock and, and Beer for Dolphins. I mean, there's a lot of interchanging yeah. going on there and so i thought well let's just try it I, and i i knew marco's stuff i'd seen that incredible stuff online and the and the instructional dvd i was just very impressed with the idea that with a with a different feeling rhythm section that we could really tap into different parts of the catalog and to revitalize them in, in a different way uh, i definitely felt a, a new sense of freedom that i gained by having a rhythm section that had their own ideas about how to move forward with a song and just the confidence they had in doing it. And so I use that as sort of a springboard and it's really turned out great. Uh, we just yeah. finished that the G4, uh, the second G4 camp uh, in Cambria and um, it was just amazing to see the Aristocrats live doing their new record, right, yeah. Trace Caballeros. Got through Governor on guitar. Just absolutely amazing. Um, we had Animals as leaders there, absolutely, you know, spellbinding amazing. Uh, and I got to play with the, for the first time, I got to play with the Mike Keneally band with, with Brian Beller and Joe Travers and uh, uh, played uh, uh, Rosemary Girl. Great song. And, and Mike is just, you know, such a great guy to improvise with. Yeah, He's yeah. so talented. He can just sing and play and write just crazy. Humble, soft-spoken guy, too. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so brilliant. I've He's got, got, I played with him and Brendan Small one show at the Roxy. Great. It's just great working with those guys. He is like... His guitar talents know no boundaries. He's just, when you think you've seen him do his thing, he comes out with six other new things, and you're like, wow, you know? He he just seems to be, his technique seems to be driven from a musical desire rather rather than the stuff that he's practiced, if that makes any sense. but Now, uh, what's the camp like there? I mean, how, how involved are you with the actual students? You're sitting down doing some face-to-face stuff? and Well, everybody, yeah. does, all the four guys, right? Yeah. Uh, in this case, uh, Tosin, Guthrie, Mike, and myself, we hold uh, two clinics every day. Uh, this year, we that's how we broke it up into two clinics. And um, and then the ensemble clinics, the animals as leaders in different groups, uh, aristocrats in different groups, the drummers get together and do drum clinics. We had Stu Hamm and Doug Doppler and Bruce Belay and Stig Matheson there, all covering from bass to uh, classical guitar. Every night there'd be a performance by one of the bands, a full-on show, in, in wow. a nice little teeny, teeny like club 
uh, dining room. It was really, it's like the only time you're ever gonna see these guys in like a hundred or 200 seater, right? And everyone's relaxed, there's no production or anything. So everybody's talking and the audience is this far away. And so, you know, just a couple of feet Very away. Cool. What's it, what would you say the age range or average ages of your campers? Wow, it is a huge spread. Um, you do have people who are my age who've been uh, fans who are not professionals or who were professional players. They bring their kids, sons and daughters, yeah. whole families come. You have really hardcore teenagers who uh, parents saved up enough money to send them here from all over the world. And they are like determined, you know, to learn everything from those great players that I mentioned. And it's crazy when you think about it because they're, I could tell I'm looking at these younger kids and they're starting with Guthrie and Tosin and Mike Keneally. And that just blew my mind. Yeah. You know, I remember when I was doing some shows and I, I realized, wow, these, a lot of the kids in the audience have started with Steve I. That was their, like, well, he's the guy that, you know, I'll start to learn all of Steve's stuff and then from there I will progress, you know, which is insane when you think about it. And which is why you have Tosin and Guthrie now. And so sure, there yeah. are kids who are starting with them thinking that's just normal. That's not yeah. abnormal. That's just normal. Yeah, so I've got to go further than that. <laughs> it's great that you had Stieg, too. I'm proud to say I hired him at a Musician's Institute. Is that right? And yeah. And then when I left to join Jefferson Starship, he uh, uh, was naturally the right fit for uh, to be the <laughs> wow, director. Okay. He See, loves your stuff, man. He knows your stuff inside out, which is great. And he's got the requisite haircut that you and me and him <laughs> all have. <laughs> it's part of the thing. Everybody had to shave their hair. Part, part of the all tone. All 200 <laughs> G4 experienced people. That's the one drawback. But we donate all the hair. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite a visual. Now, um, so you have a brand new record, Shockwave Supernova. That's right, yes. When's yeah. the actual release date? Uh, July 24th, uh, which is any yeah. moment now. Yeah. Uh, single came out this week, and, you know, we've been releasing things yeah. for about a month now. Um, I stayed away from it. You know, when I, once I deliver a record, especially if it's, a, you know, 15 songs like this, I said, you guys listen to it. Tell me what you think are your favorite songs, which songs will be good to exploit and which different medias I said I'm, I can't listen to it and make any decisions too I'm, close I'm hearing like upstroke or downstroke on that 73rd yeah. note you know that's the, the level yeah. that you get to with your musical microscope you know as you're finishing an album so I step back and you know I said you guys pick the single and do whatever you need what to is do the single? With it. it is the title track which okay. kind of makes yeah. sense yeah but the, the album has got a lot of variety on it you want to play a piece of the the riff from the Shockwave Supernova single. Sure. Hey, I'll play you this one. <laughs> realize now it's a drop d tuning <laughs> oh yeah right yeah it's got it's a funny piece i gotta play it really clean so you can hear it it almost sounds like the marco miniman influence slightly or i don't know it's actually it's south america because it's oh, three okay. four. Oh, i love it It's pretty funny, sort of like putting on the Ritz or something. A lot like of energy. The song itself was pretty interesting in, in how I had this part, right? And I had the, the chordal part, which is very Neil Young. That's right, it's a drop detuning. But of course it sounded like... 
and then yeah. it had this other verse and I, I had done the demo and and uh Kunibert, said i really like that song you could probably you know not do that twice or the whatever and he says but it'd be nice if the verse was more engaging and i thought oh that's very interesting so i took the song back and i'm just listening to the verse i'm thinking why does the verse have to be an extension of um of the of this thing set up the melodic thing set up here so i just thought like very contrarian okay what if everybody stopped and i came up with this thing where after this progression d minor That's kind of a weird thing. It had a bit of a Delta Blues thing to it in my mind. So, uh, and and it's really the song is really about fun, although it has a bit of a serious vibe and there's a lot of slide guitar on it. By the time Marco had just like played all over this thing, mm -hmm. we were in the overdub sessions and we were looking to add piano. And I said, "What if we did like a Iggy in the Stooges kind of?" piano part on top of that thing so at, you know we have this we have that thing and marco's going bum bum and we come into that and the slide mike's going dun 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 on the keyboard it suddenly became very sort of early 70s bowie you know uh uh, the Stooges kind of a thing, and it just it it's you know from that very early uh, Latin it suddenly became a very dynamic song of all these different parts, which was perfect for the theme of the whole album about you know a kind of a psychotic alter ego that takes over a performer's mind. You know, now are some of the songs are like maybe the opposite. Like I'm listening to San Francisco Blue. Yes, yeah. And that's like, a, that's the opposite personality, not the crazy shockwave. <laughs> no, I mean you know yeah, that's a real that's sweet so kind of Steve Miller kind of a blues that you know it starts right off with the melody. The whole yeah, thing is like pure. That. Can you play pure a little over that? I, I was in the car. I was here a little early. I charted out the rhythm part. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for a blues song to have it sort of very tight with all those harmonies, about six or eight guitars, just about as many amps, the solo. Uh
love it. Six with the B string in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that works. That works. <laughs> it's sort of like when I got to that point, I thought, wow, I think I'm not going to just sit here and go. Save that for some other song. So I thought, yeah, this just keep it more tight. Do something new with it. John Cunaberry was like, when he first heard it, he said, he goes, we're not going to do like uh, a Stevie Ray Vaughan thing, are we? And I said, no. And I said, you know, the joke about this song is that Marco hates shuffles. And when he hears this on the demo list, he's going to laugh. He's going to think, I wrote it on purpose just to like force him to do something different. That's good. And it worked in the studio because there's a, there's a thing that Mike does that really is really funny. There's lots of guitars, so getting him to, to fit in was interesting. But he came up with this keyboard part that sounded like, in my mind, like he was the dude and he had like a white Russian in one hand. And his part came and he decided not to put down the drink and just... <laughs> Gotta have your priorities. Yes, yeah, still set. So it's, it just, there's a lot of just good vibe on, on the song, you know. Very cool. Now, um, I actually remember opening three shows for you in like 95. I had a band called Zenner, which mentioned, oh. which was managed by Kevin Burns. Wow. And, uh, and of course, I had to sneak a look at your rig. Mm-hmm. Sound check or something. Walking by, I think you had one of those anniversary heads, and you had the DS1 Boss mm-hmm. pedal running in. Yeah. And you were getting insane sound, and now yeah. you have your own signature Marshall head. How has this evolved over the years to this head that we're looking at right here? The main difference, I guess, in the, the old days, you know, we didn't really have a lot at our disposal in terms of gear and and money for touring, uh, and I had to come up with the smallest rig possible. And I realized that well, I need a guitar, right? And I probably need a pedal, and I, you know, I need like a delay and a chorus and a wah-wah. I bet I can go anywhere in the world with that as long as I can find an amp that's clean. I can probably deal with that. And, and the benefit of using the box was that it was, the DS1 is that it was so quiet when you brought the volume down. And the experience in playing with Stu and Jonathan where we had very few songs to play and we would stretch things out was coming down to a whisper was really part of what made the show work. Uh, which is very different when you have a tube amp where the tubes are always, you know, giving you a snowstorm. You can't really capture the mood when there's all this noise coming through your amp. So the pedal really helped for that, and you could still play very delicate. It wasn't because there was no need for a noise gate. Right. However, it did sound like a little distortion box, so it wasn't like you were getting the best sound. It was just a different sound. The tools that it gave you could be very impressive in terms of how you reacted to your band. Um, that also allowed us to rent gear wherever we went. As long as we got a Marshall that had a solid, clean channel, I was pretty much set. Um, the guitars at the time also played into the fact that they had a certain sound. The albums that uh, the songs from the albums we were making also had a certain sound. I think once we did the Extremist album, it was a bit of a conflict because that album had hardly any distortion box on it. It was all Marshalls turned up really loud. I couldn't even play that loud live. I mean, it was prohibitively loud the way we recorded, but we were never in the same room as the cabinet, so it was just about the microphones. Right. So, yeah, so you use a saturator pedal quite a bit, right? So I just took that out for the interview, oh, actually. Okay. <laughs> just I, I for would, low volume settings. Yeah, because I, I realized I usually, uh, you know, with the JVM head, my gigs are usually, we're at about 114 dB maybe. That's pretty loud, um, but the amp really starts cooking. The the Some of the... Some of the sweeter points of having a big 100-watt head really start blooming at about that volume. 
And um, if you use ta- two cabinets, you know, you the array, the speaker array cuts down on the pointiness of the sound. And you can get that big, fat, soft sound that can be like the lead vocal that's always there in front of the band. So it's been an evolution towards this point of being able to do this gig and have an amp that's so completely dependable. And it is four channels with three gain modes per channel. And channel three and four are identical, so I can get the same sound louder or the same sound with just a little bit more treble or mid or bass. I mean, this is stuff I've learned from being a working guitar player, that sometimes this is, although it it seems redundant when you're in a guitar store and you look like, why do I need two of the same channel? You know that's what you need when you're on stage, in a bar, at a wedding, in a stadium, whatever. Forever, yeah. Very often you're saying, I just wish I had the exact same sound you know, eight dB louder. So, are you, are you, how many? How much wattage are you? Are you running two heads, or you one? I run one head. I use a couple of things in the effects loop, um, but like wah wah, whammy, chorus, Proctavia, Pog. Those things are going into yeah. the front of the amp. Thirty three B or just my my uh, time machine delays, which is down there. Um, they're in the effects loop. I keep it pretty simple. Yeah, pretty old school. It seems like you kind of got back into Marshalls during Chicken Foot. Yes. Uh, When we started Chicken Foot, I was still playing uh, the PV JSX. Um, We were me and the guys at PV were working on a a more standard sort of like Marshall type of amp, but it had gotten stalled in development. Uh, Sammy was playing crates, and we did the first club tour about three weeks in the U.S. and Canada, and at the end of the tour. Uh, Sammy and I were at a studio one afternoon and we both finally said, you know, our amps really don't sound like they're up for the gig. And because we're playing with Chad and Mike. I mean, they're just like thunderous players. And um, so we made a call and we said, hey, we're going to Europe, starting a European tour. Any chance that Marshall could, you know, lend us some amps? And so we were rehearsing in Vienna for about two days. And uh, Paul Marshall came with just a bunch of really cool JVM stuff and 800s, and they really helped us out. Sweet. And we did that first rehearsal, and everyone was like, whoa, this is a totally different ballgame now. So uh, I gave up a little bit of um, what I had been working on, this sort of very cultured sound for and, and using the boxes and stuff with PV. But that was I never turned back after that. I, I realized, you know, I've just got to rely on the tubes in the front end of the amp. I want, I want to get this to work somehow. Yeah. So it's been a great little uh, relationship with Santiago Alvarez. He's the engineer at Marshall. Talking about playing with some insane lead singers, what, mm. what, what's it like sharing the stage with uh, Mr. Hagar? Hagar, man, he's great. Uh, you know, first of all, he's a great guitar player. True, um, definitely. He just pick up that guitar and just play the, the appropriate thing for the moment. This is a, this is a thing that's very hard to to teach or to describe. Uh, Sammy's got great technique. He can, you know, he can pick fast, he can bend far, he's got all that stuff uh, going for him. He's got a really nice vibrato, he's got a good ear for staying in pitch and all that. But at the same time, he's been through so much, you know, and here's a guy who's played right next to Eddie Van Halen for many years, so, uh, and uh, and been in a band with Ronnie Macho, some classic guitar players, you know. So he has a different attitude these days about playing guitar. I've always loved playing rhythm behind him when he's playing because his sensibilities as a classic rock guitar player are spot on. And, uh, you know, that's a thing that's fading. 
you know, as, yeah. as the genre shrinks, you know, there's only a few yeah. people who actually do it well, but he does it really well. And he's a crazy singer. I mean, he's got a huge sounding voice, just sonically. And when he's in a good mood and he knows what he's singing about and he likes what he's singing about, he brings it all down. It's pretty amazing. Pretty cool having Michael Anthony there with those high parts, <laughs> I imagine, right? Talk about a great backup singer. Yes, yeah, yeah. He's got the voice, that pure voice. You don't want to be facing him when he's hitting a high C. Really? It's just like a laser beam through your temple, you know? It's a very pure, high C. extremely loud sounding voice. That's high. <laughs> well, anytime we did background vocals, we should have taken pictures. I was always like this far away, like four inches away from the mic. Yeah, they was always they were always saying like over the cans are going. Joe, could you move in a little bit? Mike, could you move back two feet? <laughs> and <laughs> and it would be like Mike would be six feet away, and then it would be Sammy, and then it would be Chad, and then it would be me. All based on the <laughs> power of our voice, you know. Yeah, that's um, old school recording. Yes, yeah. So we did a lot of those the the background vocals like yeah. that. Yeah. He was the canon. <laughs> right on. So you, yeah. I assume you have a massive world tour coming up for this For the album, new record, yes, the Shockwave Tour. September? Yeah, we'll be in Europe, starting in France. Of course, Keneally yeah. and Beller and Miniman are, are my band, yeah. and uh, we're going to be playing quite a bit of the new record, at least half of it, if not more, uh, and we'll be playing some favorites that we haven't played before. We always try to stretch it a bit. And 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 uh, I'm thinking I'm keen about bringing some of the songs back that we've never done live before, and maybe I have to turn them into kind of a medley a bit, so that we can get more of them in there. So it's not three hours long like a Mick Jagger set. No, <laughs> I'm sure you play pretty long though. We used to. We did a couple of tours where we did that. Um, I remember um, the Crystal Planet tour. We came out and we did the entire record in sequence, and then followed it up by a second set. You know, it was we did evening with shows quite a bit back then. We're always dealing with uh, curfews, you know. Uh, people yeah. don't realize that, but a band, when they show up to play at a theater anywhere in the world, they're renting that theater for the day, and there are rules they have to abide by. So, uh, and if we don't get off stage by 11 p.m., it, it might be six thousand dollars a minute, you know, for the local union or something. Yeah, yeah. So, it can be devastating to go over. <laughs> One last question: Who's who's the crowd on crowd chant? Oh yeah, that's really really <laughs> cool. Tell us tell us about that. Uh, yeah, the crowd chant. There's another crazy idea. I came up with this idea for crowd chant, and because for many years I'd be you know in front of an audience and I go, and I'd get oh you know the drunken yelling and stuff, <laughs> and I thought, I started to think you know it's not that they're bad singers, is that they're not rehearsed. So I thought, what if I put it on an album that wasn't a live album, and mm-hmm. uh, and then they would. Once we'd follow it up with a tour, they'd, they'd know what I was expecting. So I brought it to, at the time I was doing a super colossal record with Mike Fraser, and I got to tell you, we did not know if it was going to work. I had done all the, the guitar and the keyboards here in this studio. Uh, Jeff Campitelli came up for three weeks, did all the drums on, on the record um, up at the Armory in Vancouver. And then I asked Mike, I said, look, I think what we're going to need is about 20 to 30 people, and we're going to have to record them like 20 times, right, to make it sound like a stadium of people. But I'm going to need a couple of musicians that we can record separately that that will not only, uh, simultaneously as well, not only have uh, direct the crowd, but also try to keep the pitch together, right? Yeah. Um, so he invited a bunch of friends, and we had 
I mean, families there, and it was all you know, Coca Cola and pizza, and so they were kids, and 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 uh, we'll pay you in pizza, right? Yeah, it was that kind of a thing. And then we had maybe seven really good musicians, a couple of singers, and we we asked a guy to be the musical director for it. And then I kind of played along in a booth over there just so they bring the energy level up. But we didn't use my guitar playing for the right. for the thing. Um, but we so. It's a really funny moment. We were really quite nervous because it was so important to have the song on the record, but we we didn't know if it was going to work at all. So, you know, we pushed record. We listened to one thing. It's like, okay, that sounds really good. Let's see what happens when we record it twice and overdub it. All of a sudden, it was like times 100. Yeah. I remember Mike and, you know, looking at me with a smile on his face like, holy shit, this is like going to work beyond what you think. And now you have this instant built-in epic moment for every show that you do when you do that song the crowd yes. knows how to sing it they know. And, but i have to say you know we you know we stuck it on the record and we put it last because you know some days i'd wake up thinking this is the stupidest idea ever like it's ridiculous and then other days i would think no it's gonna work it's but it's got work. that great riff too play me the riff in the middle that is a well, epic which one i mean the after after the first batch of singing you come in with you mean the yeah yeah, turn it up a little bit. Yeah, it's the it's the the pavan from Foray back in the late 1800s. Yeah. It has that real triumphant feel that just goes yeah. along with the chanting of the, the crowd. So yeah, that's it's a right. real, it's yeah. a real emotional moment. With... That's real bonehead stuff right there. It's, it's, <laughs> it's got everything you need, man. Yeah. Cool. I was waiting for you. Come on. Oh, yeah. We you want people. Heard, to, we want people to like this. We don't. They don't want to hear me sing on this right now. <laughs> you should have heard all the other licks. We we, we did a gig in. Um, I uh, I can't really pronounce it. We called it Roll Claw, which is in southwestern Poland. Uh, that first tour, and that was the night where we realized it was really working. It was an outdoor show. We went on around midnight. There was a crowd of twenty thousand people in this beautiful, old square, but huge. The whole town, right? And this is for a party that goes to like seven in the morning. And we started that song. And they were being very nice to us. And it was seemed like a really great gig. And we hit that song. And the place went crazy. I just remember looking at Jeff. And Jeff had his, <laughs> his tech film it because he said, this is insane. Like, we thought this was a funny song. But now it's the song where finally everybody woke up. Yeah, well, audience participation, you know, they always love if they can get involved. It just takes the show to another level. It's amazing, isn't it? It's yeah. amazing. Well, uh, I got to thank you so much for sitting down for so long today and sharing so much about your whole life and your new record and your gear and everything else. Thank you very much. I hope you got the, the chewing of the gum. You might want to work on your gum tone a little bit. <laughs> Guitar tone is great. Gum tone's not really cutting through. Really? But, uh, yeah. I can chew gum and play with my <laughs> teeth at the same time. It sounds like this. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
There you go. It's my new piece. It's called Lick My Love Pump. Hope you dug that. That was pretty cool, right? Hanging deep with Mr. Satriani. I hope he inspired you to find that person inside of you, that timeless artist that keeps learning until you're 95 or older. Got a little theme music here, a little no guitar is safe theme music. Thanks again to New Bay Media's Bill Amstutz and Guitar Player Magazine Editor-in-Chief Michael Melinda for giving us the escape velocity to make this happen. Be sure to check out Joe Satriani's new series coming up in November, animated series he's creating with a great guitarist, Ned Ebbett, called Crystal Planet. Should be out in November. They're working on it. And a massive shout out to Zoom for providing this amazing Zoom H6 Handy Recorder. It's a really cool gizmo. Again, hit subscribe so that we can bring this to you every week, such as next week when we go deep with Brad Gillis. He talks about that groggy morning when he woke up and it was Sharon Osbourne and he was getting the call. The call to take over lead guitar for Ozzy after Randy Rhodes' horrific plane crash. And how he went on from there to become a mega platinum guitarist with his style all his own as lead guitarist of Night Ranger. You're gonna love the way he plays too. He's an animal. Until then, take it from Joe and keep it alive till you're 95.